0: The Precinct Omega Weekly podcast is supported by Horizon Wars Zero Dark, sci fi skirmish war games in a fallen earth. Visit Wargame Vault at wargamevault.com and search for Zero Dark.
1: It's Friday, the 13th of August, which means that the world is obviously about to fall down around our ears. My name is Roby Jenkins.
0: And my name is Bernard.
1: And I cannot. Tell you how much I've been looking forward to doing the news this week. Most weeks finding stuff of sufficient interest and value to the industry to call it news is a challenge at best and I'd be the first to admit sometimes I do scrape the barrel a bit but this week well if you wait long enough three come along at once. Let's get to it.
0: Stand by, for coming. Intelligence.
1: Games Workshop, our favourite Wargaming, bête noir, has updated its intellectual property statement and people have lost their friggin' minds. It's not a lot of people, and, and it's not important people, but they are loud people, so we'll take a look at the update, why it's happened, what it means for creators, and specifically why Emperor's text-to-speech device YouTube series has been impacted. Second this week, Games Workshop, yes, them again, has come under fire following revelations about their alleged mistreatment of employees. Now... I may not be an IP lawyer, but I am a chartered member of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. That's the UK's professional body for HR practitioners, so this is 100% in my wheelhouse, and I'm going to enjoy dissecting the allegations, their legal significance, and what other employers should take away from this object lesson. Third and Entirely connected to the previous two points, people are calling for a boycott of Games Workshop products. I'll take a look at the history of GW boycotts and explain why GW doesn't care about them or the people calling for them. But I will also talk about why, despite this, you should actually boycott Games Workshop. Sort of. And finally... Thanks to all that is holy, we have some news this week that is simultaneously legitimately important and not about Games Workshop. Because Corvus Belli, the makers of Infinity the game, Aristea and technically some other games, has decided to shift at least part of its manufacturing away from white metal and into a new material they are calling injected thermoplastic. We'll take a look at why CB has reached this decision What injected thermoplastic is, how the move is going to influence the industry as a whole, and what you should know about the new material from the hobbyist's perspective.
0: Prepare for Intel analysis.
1: Okay, let's talk about IP. I am not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. So, all businesses have intellectual property. This is intangible stuff which holds a quantifiable value. That value may be difficult to quantify and may never be likely to be sold, but it can still be demonstrably shown to possess value. In GW's case, its IP is very valuable indeed. As I've mentioned several times before, their games aren't actually all that good, and they are designed to be tools to sell miniatures. Even their miniatures, despite being things of undeniable beauty, aren't actually at the pinnacle of design quality, which you'll mostly find in Japan. What drives the sale of Games Workshop products, besides their total dominance of the tabletop wargames market, is their deep, broad and compelling intellectual property, which has grown to the point of expanding beyond interested wargamers alone, with their novels finding space on New York Times bestseller lists and their key images becoming memes that are routinely used outside their wargaming context. So it should be no surprise that Games Workshop is keen to protect the value of their IP, but they've not always done it with the highest levels of finesse. There were two important cases historically which established some of the limits on GW's willingness to throw money at IP violation prosecutions. The first was the Chapter House Studios case. CHS was a US micro-enterprise that made 28mm resin miniatures in Games Workshop's aesthetic, but where they crossed the line from similar enterprises was in specifically making miniatures to fill gaps in GW's range, something they did entirely without shame or artifice. They actually took names and details from GW's range of codexes and gave them to their minis designed to represent characters that Games Workshop had invented, but which, for some reason, they had not released miniatures. The ins and outs of the case were pretty intricate, and Chapter House Studios was lucky to get pro bono representation. The crucial outcomes were first that CHS shut up shop and its miniatures Never returned to the market because there was no question that they had absolutely crossed the line. But more importantly, it established, at least in the state of California where the case was prosecuted, that aftermarket products inspired by both Games Workshop's aesthetic and their huge body of colourful characters was 100% legal, as long as it didn't actively transgress Games Workshop's intellectual property. So just by way of example, you could absolutely create a miniature inspired by the description of Matt Farrar's terrific Shira Calpurnia, Chief Arbitrator, using imagery such as the double-headed eagle, the wind fist, and the shock maul, but you couldn't market it as Adeptus Arbitae's Shira Calpurnia. Current businesses such as RTLW, Puppets War, Anvil Industry, Vanguard Miniatures, Battlefleet Bling and many, many others have a business model that relies upon this finding for the legality of their existence and for the most part they play firmly by the rules. The second important case was that of Spots the Space Marine. Independent author MCA Hogarth published a digital novel called Spots the Space Marine, through Amazon's platform for self-publishing. And then Games Workshop issued her with a seasoned desist order and demanded that Amazon remove the book from availability. Amazon, being utterly unmotivated to stand up for its low-value authors, immediately caved, but Hogarth challenged GW's assertion to the rights to the use of the term Space Marine in literature, citing many examples of the term being used, most notably by that Froot Loop right-wing homophobe Robert Heinlein, in Starship Troopers, which comfortably predated Games Workshop's use of the same term. Now, it's important to note that Games Workshop's use of space marines in the manufacture of tabletop miniatures is actually pretty well established in law. Companies like Puppets War, who make armoured space warriors in a similar vein, cannot call them space marines for that reason but the spots case was launched round about when the black library was getting big sales and those aforementioned new york times bestseller list appearances they didn't want anyone else muscling in on their territory by using the space marine term to entice readers into thinking that their novel was one set in the 40 Cavers. nevertheless hogarth again with pro bono representation saw off the attempt. GW dropped the claim, paid damages to Hogarth, and spots went back on sale. You can still buy it. It's it's fine. And with that lengthy preamble out of the way, let's get up to date. So, following these two cases, Games Workshop published their first IP guidelines, and we need to tackle what these really are and what they aren't. What they aren't, despite many people's understanding, is a set of rules about what you can do with GW's IP and what you can't. You see, Games Workshop doesn't have that power. The rules about about what you can and can't do with another party's IP are set by government legislation, and they're enforced by the courts. And whilst the lobbyists of big IP owners might well have some traction when it comes to formulating those rules... And whilst money does indeed talk very loudly in the courts of trademark and copyright infringement, the companies don't ultimately have any right to tell you what you can and can't do with their IP. What they can do, and what GW's IP guidelines do, is tell you what kinds of use the IP owner will happily ignore, and what kinds of use they will not. GW has had an IP statement for at least a decade, I I honestly can't remember if it was first issued before or after the spots debacle. Anyway, it hasn't changed much, so why update it now? Well, there are two big answers to that. One, Astartes, and two, Warhammer Plus. And these two answers are related. Astartes, you see, was a five-part CGI animation with no dialogue that nevertheless managed to be superior to anything any licensed movie or animation had yet done in terms of both the quality of the animation and the intensity of the narrative, which was filled with nuance, mystery and brutal action that had even the most half-hearted 40k fan grinning and air-punching like the nerds we all truly are. If you've not seen it, tough, because it's not available anymore. GW offered the animator a contract in return for quietly taking it down. That was the carrot version of the offer. The stick just sat unmentioned on the desk between them. Metaphorically. My thoughts on Warhammer Plus were recorded a few episodes ago, and generally I think it's more a response to the incipient threat of 3D printing than it is that of fan animations. However, a big part of Warhammer Plus's Pluses preliminary offering is a series of professionally made short animations by a range of talented professionals, including the guy behind Astartes, Siyama Pedersen. Consequently, GW's lawyers very sensibly thought that now was a good time to update the IP statement To make it clear that fan animations were now considered to be treading on GW's ability to make money from its IP. Now whether this is true or not and under what circumstances it would or wouldn't be true is something that can only be tested in court but the IP statement now made it clear that Games Workshop would be looking hard at fan animations and potentially taking action against them. So much, to be honest, So, ho-hum. There was some minor discussion on this update on the forums, but most people couldn't give much of a stuff. Until, that is, TTS got involved. No, not Tabletop Simulator, who, you'll be pleased to know, is entirely unaffected by the IP statement update. Rather, it's a long-running YouTube web series called The Emperor's Text-to-Speech Device, and TTS is the abbreviation for Text-to-Speech and it imagines what would have happened if someone fixed up a text-to-speech device to the golden throne of the immortal corpse god emperor of the imperium of man it's been running since 2015 with multiple seasons and an ever-expanding cast of memorable characters and whilst it definitely has its moments its humor is mostly built upon the emperor being the equivalent of a foul-mouthed great-grandad with poor personal boundaries don't get me wrong It is funny at times, and it's a fun way to imagine some of the more persistent and extreme complaints of the 40k community being injected into the Dark Millennium. But it's not exactly highbrow stuff. If you like it, no judgement. However, when the updated IP statement was issued, its creator, going by the name of Brother Alpha Busa, issued an announcement that he would, as a result, cease making the series immediately. And it was as if a million prepubescent geek voices cried out as one and were suddenly not silenced. So first, I want to take a look at how TTS was affected by the updated statement. In fact,
0: Bernard, would you do the honours? No.
1: You don't
0: want to? No. The answer is no. TTS was not affected by the changes to the updated IP statement. It wasn't affected? By the statement? No, it was already affected by the existing IP statement. The changes made no difference to how TTS was affected. That's right. You see,
1: TTS uses GW's artwork and photography to make its animations. It's undeniably part of its charm, but it's also undeniable that TTS was already abusing GW's intellectual property long before the changes were made to the IP statement. All that really changed was that GW specifically called out fan animations, and Brother Alphabusa, not unreasonably to be fair, concluded that GW would shortly be coming for him. But there are a few more details that should be acknowledged. First is Fair Use Law. Basically, this allows the reasonable use of another entity's intellectual property for academic review and parody purposes. The academic part is what allows academics to quote works and other forms of IP without needing the author's permission. The review part is what allows reviewers to include images provided by a manufacturer to illustrate their reviews and inform their opinions. The parody part is more nuanced but generally speaking intellectual property can be used by a third party to parody the owner of the IP. However, the freedom to use their IP varies enormously between regions. In the US, for example, there's a lot more leeway than there is in the UK. TTS has both a parody and review right to make use of the IP, because they not only parody GW's 40k setting, but they also make critical commentary upon new releases and products, justifying it as a review medium. The question in court would be whether the extent of their use of GW's own artwork, some of which, by the way, remains at least partly the intellectual property of the artist who created it in the first place, is justified in the media. And my guess is that TTS took legal advice and was told that no, it almost certainly wasn't. Now, I guess this is the case because Brother Alpha Busa, the time he pulled the plug, was receiving the equivalent of over $100,000 a year from Patreon supporters of his channel. So, despite GW's big guns, if he had been so inclined, Brother Alphabusa could easily have afforded to contest his position if he felt it was justifiable in court. The fact that he chose not to is a good sign that he knew he would lose. And that he would end up owing GW a huge settlement in compensation for the unlicensed use of their IP. But I also think there's another angle to this story. Like I said, Brother Alpha Boosa has been running TTS for six years, and there's a lot of TTS content that all rests basically on a single joke. He's a creative and talented guy locked into his creation by the curse of too much money to stop now. The IP update from GW provides him not only with a clear and present danger to his income but also with the perfect excuse to stop doing it and move on to something more suited to the version of himself that is six years older than the one that first thought the TTS joke was funny. He already has a dedicated audience and Sure, he might lose some of them if he moves on to something else, but he'll enjoy creative freedom and will most likely retain enough of his audience to keep a decent income. Hell, he might even get enough new supporters out of this screw GW sympathy that he ends up making even more money. From my perspective, it looks like a win-win. Alpha Booster gets to do the thing he's always wanted to do for ages and GW gets to take the blame. We'll come back. To the fallout from this whole thing shortly but first I want to move to a different storm of criticism GW has recently faced, their treatment of their employees. Recently there's been a trend on Twitter asking people in creative industries about things they were not allowed to say due to NDAs but which because the NDA has lapsed they can now talk about. This has led to some fascinating and disturbing revelations particularly from the electronic games industry which with Activision Blizzard being outed for their frat boy culture, is kicking up yet another storm. But GW got caught up in this when a couple of former employees talked about their perceived mistreatment by the company. Now, I don't know the people involved, but I certainly know people who know them well, and two of those people are James Hewitt and Sophie Williams, who run the independent games design consultancy Needy Cat Games. Now, by every account james and sophie are the epitome of what we'd like our industry to be but i am going to take a bit of a look at their allegations and allegations of other former employees so all of this started with a screenshot on twitter of the official faq answer to a question about why gw doesn't list salaries for its advertised jobs A crucial thing that James talked about was how different people in GW could be on very different salaries for doing the same job. And if you listened to my interview with Jake Thornton, you'll know that one thing that led Jake and GW to mutually agree to go their separate ways was that Jake had ended up on a salary much higher than the one his role at the time deserved. James also talked about how the culture in GW assumed that the mere privilege of working at Games Workshop was Effectively worth money in itself, and there was an expectation that staff would be doing extra work in their own time because they were passionate about the hobby. A passion which he, for various reasons, not least being the knowledge that he was being underpaid, felt he no longer really had, even though he was happily doing his job within the terms of his contract. As a result of his disclosures, his business partner Sophie talked about how her maternity leave from Games Workshop was mishandled her nominated replacement was replaced and how her job was eliminated and she was reassigned without consultation while she was on maternity leave. Others have since spoken up to talk in more detail about documents known internally as the Big Red Book and later the Big Black Book which set out the company's expectations of how their employees would behave and engage with the company's mission. All of this, meanwhile, is set against the mainstream media reporting on Games Workshop's recent profit-sharing exercise in which all employees received a pro-rata bonus of £5,000 after a year of record profits for the company. Some outside observers, and it should be said James himself, have pointed out that the criticisms are about behaviour that's at least four years old, and the bonus suggests that things have changed. As an HR observer, I would suggest that on the contrary. The bonus suggests that exactly nothing has changed. Let's talk about the bonus first of all. I have mentioned recently how impressed I've been with Games Workshop's marketing and publicity strategy lately. How much more sophisticated it has become and how much more connected it seems to be with the outside world. And this bonus news is a great illustrator. You see, the bonus was paid at the end of April, just after the end of Games Workshop's financial year, when its preliminary results were reported to its shareholders. The bonus was therefore a statement to its shareholders and its investors to say, look how well we are doing that we can afford to bestow such largesse upon the proletariat. Now, I'm not saying it didn't also emerge from a generally benevolent attitude towards its employees. Self-serving motivations can exist in parallel with more generous ones. But I am saying that the power of the statement to the investors was probably a greater motivator to paying the bonus than the sense of gratitude felt towards the employees. Furthermore, news of this bonus hit the mainstream media at the same time as criticism about the workplace culture was leaking out onto Twitter and the storm over the IP update was just taking off. Why... It's almost like someone at GW got their friends in the press to create SEO-optimised good news about GW to take the heat off the company just when they needed it. Well, like I said, I'm very impressed by whoever is heading up the marketing and publicity teams at GW these days. They have certainly studied their Machiavelli. With that dealt with, let's talk about salary, because I've been around this boy a few times with employers who try to tell employees not to discuss their salaries. It is simply impossible to make employees not discuss their salaries. It is as futile as Canute and the Tide. But the utter pointlessness of this aside, there is only one reason to not let employees discuss salaries, even if it were possible, and that is to disguise the fact that you can't actually justify why people are paid what they are paid. Now, I've beaten my head on a desk about this time and time again in the past. When employers have offered potential recruits a salary that's either way higher than the job deserves, on the basis that's what we've got to pay to get them, or way lower because that's all they've asked for the only question worth asking is what value the work of the employee provides to the company and there are tools and methods for calculating that which have been well tested over and over again for decades the most popular being the hay model for commercial enterprises but There are others, such as the modified GLPC scheme, which is best suited to public sector and charitable enterprises. Now, many companies use bespoke systems, but almost all of them are built upon one of these two methods. The whole point of these systems is to ensure that an employee is paid a salary commensurate with the level of responsibility they hold and the value of the work they perform. And in this scenario any employee's salary can be justified objectively using the system. As a result, there's no reason in this kind of workplace to try and stop people talking about their salary, which, remember, they're going to do anyway, because everyone knows that their salary has been objectively assessed. Now, a system like this doesn't mean that two people doing the same job can't be paid different amounts. If one of them has done the job for two weeks and one for five years, then the latter person is likely to be paid more than the former. If one has consistently had outstanding performance results and the other hasn't, again, the former should be paid more than the latter. If one has no disciplinary warnings and the other has several, again, it should be no surprise that this one is paid more than the other. Now, you may argue that the fairness of the disciplinary warnings, but there are systems to do exactly that. But the principle is sound. If you have a fair framework by which to assess a person's value to the business, there is no reason why you shouldn't be able to talk about who earns what. And going back to job adverts, this can then inform the salary for a role. You should always advertise a salary, even if it's a starting-from salary. And if you're going to advertise a maximum figure for a role, assume that all candidates will automatically ask for that amount. If you're not prepared to offer it, don't put it on the advert. And those are the facts about salary and salary setting. Now, let's talk about culture. For a long time in the HR business, there was this idea that culture was something that could be imposed upon an organisation. A bit like a uniform that through the use of haptic cues and policy rules an executive team could somehow shape its workforce into being what they wanted it to be when i was doing my postgraduate qualification this was the idea i was taught and to be honest i pretty much bought it even though in retrospect it's patently not true a couple of weeks ago i talked about emergent properties in game design and their relationship with chaos theory well Culture is another emergent property and one over which an executive team can exercise very little actual control. You certainly can't dictate a culture through a book, big, black or even little and red. There is one and only one thing that an organization's leaders can do to influence the culture they want to see in their business and that is to live it themselves. It's amazing how often I've heard business leaders lack. Uh, moan about the lack of willingness of employees to work beyond their contracted hours only to watch the same leaders knock off early on a Tuesday to hit the golf course or contrary wise I've heard leaders talk about how important it is to them that their employees enjoy a healthy work-life balance only to find the boss at their desks on a Saturday morning. If you want to see culture change in a business it has to start at the top and it has to be sustained. That said, you cannot force people to buy into a culture. I've often said to managers, frustrated at a perceived lack of passion in their employees, that they should be happy, delighted even, to have employees who turn up on time, work hard, meet targets and don't abuse their colleagues. You may be surprised how rare those employees actually are. When you get them, treasure them. In some ways, the people who buy into the passion of a small business's owner are the people most likely to burn out, because unlike the owner, they aren't reaping the physical benefits of a business's success. The owner gets fat dividend payments and can expand their salary at will. The employee's benefit from the business's success is usually fixed at their salary, and maybe a bonus. Their psychological feedback just isn't on the same level as the person whose whole identity is bound up in the success of the business. When you value cultural buy-in over competence, you get situations like the ones that Sophie faced. The mishandling of her maternity leave was very unprofessional, without question. It's the kind of scenario I've seen many times affect people who have to be away from their job for an extended period, and... Obviously, that means it tends to affect women more than it tends to affect men. But when it comes to poor management, GW's behaviour on the axes of incompetence versus malice is still at the bottom left. And all of this finally brings us to the latest call to boycott Games Workshop. I remember the first one of these being in the early 90s when GW started seeding shops on every UK high street they could get into. They flooded the market with GW stores, many of which were never going to be profitable, with one objective and one objective only, which was to, small, to force small independents who sold miniatures from other companies out of business. And it worked. Dozens of small wargaming stores, some of which had been in business for decades, shut up shop and disappeared. Then GW rationalised its least profitable stores, and the market for tabletop wargames was pretty much sewn up. Warhammer and Wargame would be synonymous in the UK for generations. They tried to do the same thing in the US, but underestimated, as many have done before and since, just how bloody large that place is. This is why the FLGS remains a common feature of US towns and small cities, but in the UK is much rarer. Back then, there was a call to boycott GW. It didn't take. Then there was another one during and after both the CHS and SPOTS cases, and again, it had no impact. This time, it won't matter. GW doesn't care about your boycott for two reasons. First... Only a small fraction of their market is even going to hear about the news we've discussed this week, and of those, only an even smaller fraction is going to care. Out of those who do care and who do decide to boycott GW, most of those will give up on their boycott when they realise that they can't get regular games against a wide variety of opponents without playing GW games. So, don't boycott GW because you think it'll make them listen change their IP statement, or bring back TDS. Don't boycott GW because you think their employment practices suck. They do, but that's because they're a big company, and the employment practices of all big companies suck. However, that's not the same thing as me saying don't boycott GW. In fact, I absolutely think you should boycott GW, just not for the reasons other people think you should do it. In fact... I think you should boycott GW because in almost every respect if your experience of miniatures wargaming relies on GW you are accepting second best or worse their miniatures aren't the best their paints aren't the best their games definitely aren't the best even their story setting cool as it undeniably is isn't the best the only thing that GW actually has going for it is its ubiquity. You can easily buy new stuff and find online content to help you use it and find real life opponents to play their games. If all you want out of miniatures wargaming is to have the reassurance of a regular opponent then that's what GW will give you. In almost every other respect they simply aren't the best thing on the market. So go ahead Boycott GW, not because they're bad, but because they're meh. Buy minis from Wargames Atlantic. Play Kings of War. Use Vallejo paints. Cre- create an account at War Game Vault. Read Dune, or a Game of Thrones, or the Honor Harrington series. Try out and explore games, products, and tools that aren't made by Games Workshop for a while. It might make it harder to find an opponent, but it might also open up doors to meet new opponents who can tell you about other games and products and tools that if you stayed within the comforting familiarity of Games Workshop, you'd never even know existed. Now, obviously, if you're listening to this podcast on a regular basis, I probably don't need to tell you any of this. But if you think there are other people out there who should hear this message, albeit after wading through the best part of an hour of business chat, then why not share it with them and see what they think? Boycott Games Workshop not because they're bad but because we deserve better
0: that was dramatic
1: it was wasn't it
0: but now you have to talk about seal cast
1: oh yeah okay let's come back down to earth because this is actually interesting Co Cast has been around for a little while. They're a Spanish company seeking to offer small-scale miniatures manufacturers in the UK, EU and US a practical alternative to either white metal casting or outsourcing to China. White metal has been an increasing problem for casters of all sizes. It has a lot going for it. The fidelity of casting is outstanding, its malleability makes it easy to bend parts, and metal is easy to cut and file to create multi-part miniatures and conversions. It's also, compared to plastic, very easy to cast in a sub-industrial space like a shed or a garage, whilst also being quite scalable if you want to cast in quantity. Meanwhile, though, it also has some major drawbacks. Modern hobbyists increasingly lack the patience to work with it given the diversity of plastic miniatures that are also available. Its weight and hardness mean that paint can chip or wear relatively easily, and it's expensive. I mean, it's always been expensive to ship because of the weight, but now it's becoming expensive to buy too, with the price of tin in particular having soared over the last couple of years. And that's before you get into the question of sourcing for the component metals used in white metal alloy, of which tin... is the the largest contributor, but far from the only one. Corvus Belly has long resisted a shift to plastic because, for excellent reasons, they wanted to be able to keep manufacturing in-house, and wanted to be certain of both supply and quality. White Metal has for years been their go-to product for manufacturing because it has met their standards on both of these measures – But as their designs have become larger and more sophisticated, the pressure has been growing, and their Kickstarter-exclusive sci-fi dungeon crawler Defiance included a monster miniature, the Megalodron, cast in a new material. Their previous board game, Aristea, has plastic miniatures cast in board games-quality plastic in China. They're fine, but not great. But the Megalodron was cast in Spain, and it came in this new thing. Injected thermoplastic. Now, okay, to material scientists this isn't a new thing at all. I learned about thermoplastics versus thermosetting plastics back when I did my DTGCSE, back in the 90s. I'm no expert, But the key factor of a thermoplastic is that after it's set, it can be melted down and recast. This massively reduces the waste arising from miscasts and casting gates in resin casting and eliminates the need for the sprues used on hips, that's high-impact polystyrene, as used in most plastic miniatures, and which contributes vast quantities of waste to landfill. Of course, it has also historically made thermoplastics vulnerable to distortion in heat, and as a result, tended to mean casting pretty soft levels of detail. But this company, SEOcast, seems to have found a formulation for injectable thermoplastic that gets around this to produce levels of detail fidelity equivalent to white metal. In addition, their product requires a high enough heat to liquefy and become injectable that there seems to be very little risk of heat-related distortion of Cast miniatures. Unless you actually take a blowtorch to your minis, they shouldn't be melting in the back of your car on even an abnormally hot day in the Sahara Desert. Most impressively to my mind is that CO Cast has productified the entire process. Is that even a word... It is now, because they've made every stage of the process into a product they can sell. CO-Cast sells the machines that make the moulds, and the machine that does the injection and the materials to make both moulds and casts, and, perhaps most importantly, the training on how to use those devices and the ongoing support you'll need to maintain them. It's all clever as hell, and CO-Cast is gambling on the idea that professional cast models, in their Robust, high-performance material is still going to enjoy a substantial market, even in the face of a growing popularity for 3D printing. There's a lot going for COCAST right now. I was aware that Creaturecaster had adopted it as a material for some products it's developed with a new partner, but to hear that Corvus Belly, who have been almost dogmatic about their conviction that white metal was the only material to offer the quality control and fidelity that they wanted for their products to hear that they've committed to using CoCast is a huge step forward it's basically an announcement that the most quality obsessed company in miniatures wargaming believes that CoCast can give them what they want and that is a huge deal
0: intelligence logged analysis confirmed applying data
1: And so we reached the part of the podcast where I get to talk about Precinct Omega, and I think some of the relevance of this episode is pretty obvious and some of it isn't, so I'll try and keep it brief. First, on the off chance that you are a small business owner in need of HR consulting, advice or strategic guidance... I am available. I am qualified, insured, and can provide quotes for a range of services depending upon your needs and the size of your organisation. Yes, I do mostly write war game rules these days for money, but I can still plan and execute an organisational change with the best of them, and I can also rewrite your policies like a demon to make them into something that your employees will actually want to read. How do you think I learned how to write Wargames rules? I can even consult on ISO 9001 and 14001 certifications if you want to save money by improving your internal quality management processes. Second, if you're thinking of dipping your toes into a game that isn't a Games Workshop one, then might I gently recommend that you check out the Horizon Wars range of games from Precinct Omega Publishing, available from Wargame Vault. Horizon War Zero Dark is a skirmish game in which you can use your existing miniatures to make up small teams of heroes and take on a larger force of bad guys solo, co-op or PvP in versus mode. And Horizon War's Infinite Dark is a spaceship combat game built on a version of the same rules. So if you still have Battlefleet Gothic sitting in a foam case gathering dust or thought you'd try Aeronautica Imperialis but found it less than exciting then maybe this is a chance to give those minis a new lease of life. Unlike Games Workshop, Precinct Omega does care about you. Games Workshop doesn't, because their size makes them immune to criticism in all but the most extraordinary situations. So if you have any feedback about any of my rules, the Horizon Wars setting, or my miniatures, currently just the ball monsters, but I have more on their way, you can always tell me. Ideally, via my patreon but i can be emailed at precinct omega at gmail.com in fact if you really want to take your frustrations out on a miniatures war games company you can definitely start a boycott precinct omega campaign because i guarantee it will make me cry and might actually ruin my life if on the other hand you'd like to do something more positive about your dissatisfaction with games workshop how about instead of looking to put something down find something to lift up. Doesn't have to be me, although it can be, if you like. It could be Infinity the Game, or Star Wars Legion, or even Marvel Crisis Protocol. But why not try something from a small independent designer on Wargame Vault? I guarantee that they will appreciate your custom much more than Games Workshop will ever notice they lost it. And what about CO Cast. Now I've talked before about my plans to develop miniatures for my games and my choice being between white metal and resin and why I'd choose one over the other, but I will certainly be interested to find out if any of my regular casting partners are looking at moving into CO cast or where I might be able to contract some CO cast manufacturing in the UK. But first, I will definitely be looking to get my hands on some CO-Cast products from Corvus Belly to put it through the paces and see exactly what can and can't be done. Rest assured, when I get some, I'll have the camera running to record the results.
0: Recognitive Function Online. Logic Engine Online. Standby for predictions.
1: Next week, we'll be looking at design again, and for a topic... I'll be thinking about command and control. Much is said about the fog of war, morale, and the role of the commander on the tabletop. We'll look at how different games reflect different kinds of leadership and what designers need to think about when building a command and control system for their game. So, I will speak to you again next week.
0: The Precinct Omega Game Design Podcast is supported by our patrons on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Precinct Omega to help us continue developing new games and creating hobby content for war games enthusiasts all over the world.